so we're continuing in Luke chapter 4. Open your Bibles, Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 38 through 44. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him, Jesus that is, on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any um, relatives, that is, who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, "'You are the Son of God!' But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose." And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. God, our Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we may understand uh, these verses, that we may uh, be transformed by these acts of your Son. Lord, we pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, convict us, and convince us of the truth of Scripture that we may leave differently than we came in. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we were last in the book of Acts. Last week, we, as I mentioned a minute ago, we had a topic on God, the Bible, and identity. And the week before that, Dr. Bob Yarbrough from the seminary uh, preached for us. So we're back in Luke. And last time uh, we left off, we were looking at Jesus' authority over demons. You may remember that. That was a few weeks back. We were looking at Jesus' authority over demons, and we talked about how his preaching, his purity, and his power brought him into conflict with the powers of darkness. His preaching, his purity, and his power brought him into conflict with the powers of darkness, and it also, those very things bring us into conflict with the powers of darkness. And it may seem like this section right here from our passage this morning um, is just a collection of brief disconnected comments about a period of Jesus' life, but they're actually very um, carefully connected. The Jewish people wanted to see signs to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And in this brief passage, Luke provides some for them. He reveals Jesus' divine power over three realms. So in this passage, we see Jesus' power over the natural realm, the supernatural realm, and the eternal realm. So first, let's look at the natural realm Jesus' power over the natural realm, verses 38 and 39. Simon, that's Peter, 
His mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, the Bible says. And the word literally means that she was taken by a fever. So she didn't just have a temperature, but uh, the, the word denotes that she was seized by a fever, which indicates that it was serious. She was suffering. She was seriously ill, suffering from a high fever, bedridden, no doubt. And she couldn't move. And if you've ever had the flu, you know how debilitating a fever can be. You know, it hurts to even brush your teeth. It's painful. You have the chills, and sometimes at night you have hallucinations. And uh, if it's bad enough, it can even kill you. But Simon's mother-in-law may have been uh, in the grip of death. And the disciples appeal to Jesus on her behalf, and Jesus stands over her and rebukes the fever. Now, what's interesting about this is we think of Jesus speaking to conscious entities and rebuking them. People, demons, spirits, powers. But this passage is interesting because it demonstrates that Jesus has power even on the molecular level. He's got power over chemicals and blood cells and bacteria, viruses, atoms, molecules obey him. He has power over the natural realm, and immediately our mind thinks of when Jesus quieted the storm, right? He's on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples, and he says, peace, be still, and the elements obey him. Because Jesus has power over the natural realm. And so he rebukes the fever, and the fever obeys and leaves Simon's mother-in-law. For decades, you know, men have tried to control the weather. You know, every year, climbers on Everest die because of unpredictable storms. And scientists, and they develop, you know, vaccines... But they still struggle to find cures to the most deadly diseases like cancer and diabetes, Ebola and AIDS, which as yet they have found none. Um, But because Jesus, along with the Father and the Spirit, made the world, we talked about that last week when we were talking about the reason that God is the only one who gets to identify us is because God is the one who made us. Well, Jesus, along with the Father and the Spirit, made the world, and because he made the natural world and the natural order, he has power over it, which is to say he holds all creation in his hand. He holds all creation in his power. He has power over uh, molecules. He has power over the natural world, over the elements, and over the earth. And he has power over sickness. I once worked for um, a home builder and, uh, in California, and I was a warranty representative. So if you bought a brand new home and the plumbing you know, uh, started to falter after you know, a few months or within the warranty period, we would come out, we would interpret the warranty, which is a fancy way of saying we'll decide if we're going to cover this or not. Uh, But usually, if it was still under warranty, we would call out that subcontractor, whether it was the windows or the roofer or whoever it was. And the reason we didn't attempt to do it ourselves is because that subcontractor put those windows in 
or he put that roof on the building, or he installed the plumbing himself, and because he constructed it and built it and put it together, he knew better, or she knew better, than anyone else. And there's the idea here that this isn't hard for Jesus to do because he made the world. And so he understood the human body. He understood all the elements of nature. And there's a parallel for us when we think about our world today. When we think about the problems in our world today, they're actually easily fixable. We think of our culture and our society, how complex things are. And they are complex, but in a very real sense... The problems in our world are easily fixable if the world would only consult its maker. It's not hard. God has given us his design for creation, for human flourishing and humanity. It's found in his word and in his work and acts of redemption. It's actually quite simple. We complicate it, though. So Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, and instead of being weak and needing recovery time... Like most people after a fever breaks, what happens? Well, she immediately rises and she starts to serve those around her. And the word used here for serve is the same word as minister. In fact, in the King James Version, it says she rose and began to minister to those in the house. And this is important because it demonstrates why Jesus delivers us from the grip of Satan. It's for his glory and it's so that we can serve and minister to others. Release from oppression is always so that we might serve and minister in the church and in the world. You know, God calls each of us, right, to serve and minister in different ways. And it's never just fire insurance. Can I say that? When God delivers us, it's never just, you know, for our salvation only for we can, so we can go to heaven. I say, I call it fire insurance to say, it's just, you know, God doesn't save us, deliver us just so we can say, well, you know, I'm, this is so, you know, I can go to heaven and I'm saved and that's the only purpose and reason that God delivers us from the grip of Satan. Actually, he saves us and uh, uh, delivers us from the punishment of our sins But it's so we can do something in this world, and that's bring glory to him, and that's uh, proclaim the gospel and the good news to others and be instrumental in redemption in the lives of other people. And not only that, but that's so the creation can be restored to its original purpose. And so God delivers us for a reason. It's to minister and serve others. Um, So Jesus has the power over the natural realm. We see this in his healing of Simon's mother-in-law, but he also has the power over the supernatural realm. If we look at verse 40 through 41, in verse 40 it says, And all those who had any um, were sick with various diseases. Your your translation may not not have it, but it, it means... All of those who had friends or relatives or neighbors who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And this is interesting because Jesus has the power in his words to simply proclaim, you know, 
mass corporate deliverance over a crowd of sick people, but he doesn't do that. What he does is one by one, he engages people individually, and he lays his hands on each and every person that comes to him. There is this intimate connection that I think we're supposed to see here, that Jesus cares about us also individually, that we're not insignificant. He doesn't just pronounce a blessing of healing and deliverance and send everyone on their way. He is personally engaging each and every sick person. And he's laying his hands on each and every one of them. And it goes on to say that demons also came out of many. And what should be clear here is that the proclamation of the good news by way of Jesus' authority in bringing the the kingdom of God to bear over every rebel power, not only confronts and delivers us from natural oppression, but spiritual oppression also. You know, it's like Jesus is bulldozing through, you know, the, 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 the field, and along the way, you know, he's not just casting out disease, but he's, he's blowing back the powers of darkness and, and demonic forces. And what's important for us to recognize is that in the first century... And in many parts of the world today, the division between natural and spiritual diseases was ambiguous. You know, we think very, we think very scientifically today about if someone has a genetic problem or if someone has a psychological or psychiatric problem. Uh, but in the ancient world, the distinction between physical sickness and spiritual oppression was much more ambiguous. Um, In John 9 and 2, just before Jesus heals a man of blindness, the disciples ask, who sinned that this man was born blind? They don't ask, you know, what's the genetic defect, Jesus, in this this man's vision? They're automatically connecting sickness to spiritual problems. Um, They're less concerned with the genetic defects, and their mind is oriented towards spiritual realities that are interconnected with the natural world. So what's helpful for us to see is that Jesus' power knows no boundaries. And as he rebukes sickness and disease, demons start to come out of people. Um, And the scope of what Jesus is doing just gets broader and broader. He's not just healing bodies... He's renewing minds. Jesus is not just healing bodies, but he's renewing minds. And the scope of his ministry here at the end of chapter 4 of Luke demonstrates that it's it's just broadening. It's getting bigger and bigger. Um, In his commentary on Luke, Joel Green says, The spirit-anointed ministry of Jesus connotes a new world order where the demonized, the sick... Women and others living on the margins of society are embraced in the redemptive purposes of God. Jesus is bringing towards him people who are outcasts, people who have been marginalized on the edges of society. And what this demonstrates is that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Right In Jesus' day, there are people who are simply ignored 
by the religious leaders. They're relegated to obscurity, but Jesus' power over the natural and the supernatural realm offers healing to the sin-sick of this world and every corner of society. Everyone is touched who comes in contact with Jesus. He's not seeking out simply the privileged, those with a reputation for being smart, for being good theologians, the religious elite. He's seeking out everyone. The gospel is for everyone. There is no one in this world beyond the power of the gospel to forgive and restore us to God. We talked about that a little bit last week when we talked about the transgender crisis in our nation, and we want to be... We want to be rock solid about what the Bible says about these things, but at the same time, we want to be able to articulate the fact that the gospel is also for the transgender person, that they can find forgiveness also at the foot of the cross like the rest of us. So Jesus is healing. Demons start to come out of people, and in a desperate attempt, the demons cry out in verse 41, You are the son of God, but he rebuked them and wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This is interesting because we might think, why does he silence them, right? I mean, at least someone recognizes who he is. Well, in the ancient world, to know the name of a deity and to call out the name of a deity is to, in some way, try to exercise power over it. So their confession that Jesus is the Son of God is not a a heartfelt confession of faith, as if to say, okay, Lord, we submit, you know, forgive us now, we recognize it, you know, your Savior and Lord. He silences them because their um, declaration of who he is is really an act of rebellion, right? Remember from... Uh, Later on in the New Testament, when Paul encounters people who cry out Paul's ministry, Paul rebukes and silences them, right? Paul is going around uh, preaching the gospel and healing people, and um, uh, some follow him around saying that these are prophets of the Most High, but really what they're doing is calling unnecessary attention to his ministry. And so Jesus rebukes them um, because it's not an authentic confession, uh, it's, it's some way to almost challenge or antagonize Jesus. And what's interesting is, in our country, we have professional theologians, you know, scholars at the university level who write about Jesus in the Bible, um, but they don't believe any of it's true, many of them. A genuine confession of Jesus as Lord isn't the result of mere knowledge, but of faith from the heart. You can say, this is who Jesus was historically, this is who everyone else says he is. You can even profess with your mouth certain things, but what God cares about is the heart. Jesus wants to hear people confess him. He wants to hear other people confess from the heart his identity as the son of God. So we've gone through two areas of Jesus's power already. We've gone through the fact that we've talked about the fact that Jesus has power over the natural realm. Jesus has power over the supernatural realm. And then third, we want to look at the fact that Jesus has power over the eternal realm in verses 42 through 44. Um, 
It says in verse 42, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so when the day came after, uh, on Sunday after the Sabbath, where Jesus is demonstrating his great power um, over the natural and supernatural realms, Jesus leaves Peter's house, and um, just before daybreak, he goes into a secluded place. You know, Jesus needed rest also. When we think about our busy lives, we work, we run our kids to their sports or their activities, and we go, 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 go. That's the kind of culture we're in, right? Time is money. Time is valuable. We're always doing something. But you know, there's a, there's a value in resting. There's a value in stopping and slowing down. It's one of the reasons why prayer is so important. Prayer slows us down. Prayer forces our lives to stop for a moment. And if you're here this morning, if you're struggling with a prayer life, a healthy prayer life, I want to encourage you that God meets us in prayer. And Jesus, who's the Son of God, if you read carefully through the New Testament, he's always, there's always these brief statements where he's stealing away to pray. And they looked for Jesus and they couldn't find him and he was in the mountainside praying. Or, you know, he was all night you know, in the hill country praying. And Jesus, after this big demonstration of power over the natural and the supernatural forces, he leaves and he goes to pray because he needs time with the Father. And I want to say if Jesus needed time, quiet time with the Father to talk and to hear from God, how much more do you think we do? How much more do you think we need time to talk to our Heavenly Father in prayer? Some of us just might be run into the ground and ragged and exhausted because we don't make any time for that. And that's something that we have to do to continue to be refreshed and strengthened. And so Jesus goes off to pray, and they come after him. Uh, It says, but the crowds, you know, they were looking for him, and they came to him. They're trying to cling to him. Verse 42 says, the people sought him and came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. And it's understandable, right? Uh, Jesus is blowing through your town, healing and delivering and demonstrating power over disease and sickness and demons. Why would you want him to leave, right? I mean, you know, imagine uh, in our town, you know, we hit, this is, I've never seen a place with more hospitals. It's amazing. You know, there's, there's mercy in St. Luke and St. This and St. That and compassion and mercy, I mean, all these different, you know, medical, Jewish, you know, Barnes, you know, uh, Jewish hospital. There's all these hospitals. Can you imagine if someone came into town and walked on every floor of every hospital and, and just emptied the place? Just healed every single person on every ward and every floor and all the hospitals emptied out. Not only the hospitals, but the psychiatric institutions too. I mean, nobody would want them to leave, 
You know, we'd want to hang on to this person. It would just, it would be a, you know, a, natu- a national phenomenon. People from all over the world would come to see this person. So naturally, this town, they don't want Jesus to leave. You know, he's, he's healing everyone. He's making everyone's lives whole, you know, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Jesus is demonstrating his power, and people are astonished. They've never, ever, ever seen anyone like this. Even the prophets of the Old Testament didn't perform miracles like Jesus. In, a, in the days of Elijah and Elisha, only the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian were healed in those long years of Israel's rebellion against God. Nobody, nobody has come along like Jesus. No one has ever seen the things that Jesus is doing. And so, of course, they want to cling to him. But, you know, the signs and the miracles of Jesus uh, were not an end in themselves. That's right. Jesus' miracles, the healings, the signs, the wonders, they weren't an end in themselves. Uh, They were a means to an end. You see, because Jesus wasn't primarily a miracle worker, he was a preacher of the gospel. Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, and he said, when they tried to hold on to him, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus repeatedly affirmed that the Father had sent him. He didn't come merely to demonstrate his power over the effects of sin in the body by physically healing people and the mind by overcoming demonic influence. But most importantly, his power to overcome sin's eternal consequences. What good would physical healing and you know, mental uh, healing be without being healed of sin's eternal consequences. Just as God sent Jesus to preach the good news of the kingdom to Israel, we're sent to proclaim the good news to the world. So if you can think about it this way, Jesus to Israel, us to the world. In fact, Jesus even says in John 20 and 21, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Because see, what ultimately ultimately what people needed wasn't just physical healing. It wasn't just freedom from demonic oppression. It was salvation. They needed to hear the good news of the kingdom that Jesus is Lord over the natural realm, the supernatural realm, and eternity. That Jesus' powers weren't some temporary physical manifestation of a miracle worker, but was a demonstration that God is in control of all things. The gospel has the power to heal us physically, mentally, spiritually, and the gospel has the power to save us eternally. This is why we proclaim Jesus because we believe certain things about eternity. And those true things about eternity 
mean that the present is different. What's true about eternity means that the way we live right now matters. The way we see each other, the way we behave, the way we interact with our families, our spouses, our children, that matters because God is on the throne. We believe that Jesus is Lord of eternity, and so the present matters. God reigns is what we're saying. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is that that which separated us from the Father has been removed in the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that has changed world history. Now, I know it's awkward in our culture today to think about the idea that we would tell other people that what we believe is so true that they need to believe it too. That might be the most uncomfortable. That, in fact, it's probably, that's probably, there's probably more tension over that idea than there ever has been at any time. I don't know. I, that, this is how it feels to me. Because we live at a time where you don't tell people that what they believe is wrong. Who, who are we to say, right? That's, a, that's, that's the air we breathe. Who are we to say what someone else believes isn't true or, or isn't right? But you know... Um, Because the gospel is real, Christians can't stay quiet. I want to encourage you, I want to give you a charge this morning um, that for all of your apologetic reasoning uh, and approach to engage people with the gospel, there really is no substitute for just proclaiming uh, that Jesus died for our sins and that Jesus is Lord. Yes, we should be apologetically sensitive. We should build relationships with people. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to close the deal, if I can put it that way. And there's no substitute for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins. Uh, We have to boldly and confidently assert that in spite of the fact that at times it seems that, you know, Satan's in control, certainly might have seemed that way for the people in Jesus' day, before Jesus came along, Satan's actually not in control. Right now, we're, as a nation, we're, and especially as Christians, we're probably, it's, it's hard to stay encouraged. Some of you might really be struggling to think, is God really in control? Because sometimes you look out the window and it seems so dark in spite of the beautiful sunshine, right? The world can seem dark, the world can seem cold. But you know, this is my father's world, Right? The hymn says, oh, let me never forget that, oh, the um, wrong seems off so strong. God is the ruler yet. God is in control and he reigns. So I just want to ask you this morning, are you living with the confidence that Jesus has divine power over all of these realms? Are you living your life with the confidence and the knowledge and the assurance That the natural realm, the supernatural realm, the eternal realm, all of creation, past, present, and future, is in the sovereign control of Jesus? He reigns. He rules all realms. That knowledge ought to elicit in us a profound spiritual transformation. And then it should cause us to live and engage our neighbors confidently. We can be confident 
when we talk about Jesus because it's true. We can be confident when we proclaim the gospel because we know that every other interpretation and philosophy of history and of the world falls short. This is one of the reasons why we're in the chaos we're in as a nation because every alternative explanation of reality and existence ultimately fails and crumbles. All the more we should be confident in the proclamation and assertions of the gospel and of the word of God. Satan's a great trickster, you know. Um, If he can get us to believe the battle is lost, we just won't say anything at all. But that's not what God has called us to. If we don't believe that, uh, if we believe, you know, the battle's lost, we'll just stay quiet. We won't say anything. But Jesus' power over these realms, the demonstration of his authority, of his lordship, of his rule, just in these few passages demonstrate that there's nothing beyond his power. And that we have a security that we want the world to know about. Let's pray. Father, uh, we can be complacent. It can be easy to become complacent. And it can be easy to become intimidated because we're living at a time certainly in this corner of the world where hostility towards the truth claims of the gospel of your son are only increasing and on the rise. But we know, O oh God, that in the first century, in a likely much more hostile environment, where the world of the Mediterranean was steeped in paganism, the gospel flourished. The message of the risen Lord had spread like wildfire because of the confidence and the, and the spirit-empowered preaching of the disciples and early Christians. And so we pray now, O oh God, that you would empower us also, that we would see and know that Jesus truly is on the throne, that he reigns, and that there is no rebel power beyond his authority. We pray, O oh God, for confidence. We pray, O oh God, for an abiding joy that would fill our hearts, that we might open our mouth and boldly proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Amen. As the ushers come forward with the offertory baskets,